audience. I'll try to engage people around me more. And that is not my nature. That is the nurturing aspect of being told that I'm funny and that people will come watch me and people want to be in shows with me. You know, if you stroke someone's ego enough, it gets healthy. That's Aaron, improviser, writer, and reluctant physicist with the voice of a newscaster. Stay tuned for a human interest story about the cult of improv, building realities, and how to play nice with other grown-ups. I'm Amber, and here's Angelica with our weekly chat. Hi, Aaron. Hi, Angelica. Thanks for joining us on Chatty Crafties. My pleasure. First time, long time. Yes, this is going to be so fun and awesome. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Setting the expectation bar really high. I am enthusiastic. So a little bit about our history. Okay. I was hanging out with Genevieve, who was our first interview the Mm. night she met you at a friend's apartment. Yeah, in Melrose Apartments. I just showed up with Genevieve to try on costumes on the balcony is what I have a memory of this from 2002. Um, Early June. You write and you do improv. Yes. What is your improv schedule? What is, uh, loose and free. I've been doing it now for about 20 years. This month is my 20th anniversary. Shut up. No. Congratulations. Well, perf- for performances. Thank sure. you. Thank you. Uh, I think if you include those games you play in middle school and stuff like that, it's longer. But yes. my first big improv show was junior year in high school. How did you get into it? Um, well, again, we did those theater games, you know, growing up in theater, you do a lot of sort of, uh, you know, how do you keep someone busy in between plays? You make them play improv games. That's kind of an easy, it's like putting a movie on, uh, in another class if you're in English class, but in theater class, they make you play improv games and there are, um, competitions in middle school and high school to do improvised this, that, and the other. So I did some of those. And then my friends, just sort of a random allotment of theater friends, junior year, uh, we've all been really getting into improv. We started doing it more just to each other, make each other laugh. And then uh, Jeremy Sweet Lamb, used to be Jeremy Lamb, and uh, John Benner and a few other people were like, we're going to actually put on a show. No teacher's going to sponsor us. You know, They're going to let us into the theater, but we're going to do it all ourselves, plan everything ourselves and do it. So uh, they had auditions, and I you know, did some good auditions, pretended I was a rock star, pulled out an imaginary penis that made everyone laugh. It was great. Good As times. As it does. And history goes from there. So, yeah. So that was in high school. And so you did theater. Mm. You didn't do it in college. You I did like a, no, I did a few plays here and there, but mostly it was just improv. The improv we were doing at, at that point, that troupe in college was twice a week with monthly shows, if not a few extra shows in between. So that was a pretty full schedule considering I was doing college as well. But your degree wasn't in theater and no, dance. No, no. Physics. Physics. Okay. Yeah. That's what I remembered. So different. Yes. Yeah. No, improv and everything creative has always been sort of like therapy for me. It's always been like the thing I do to like get my head straight so I can go and do work. Yeah. Is there a creative overlap in physics? Um, I mean, I think the closest when I was doing some writing physics related. So I would, you know, I I wrote, uh, I ghost wrote like one or two chapters for Nanotechnology for Dummies um, from, I don't know if we can include, (laughs) you know, everyone knows who those who writes those books. Yeah, but that's yeah. fine. Yeah, so I did a little bit of that, and uh, that was semi-physics related, right? And then I uh, worked for a major publishing house in New York for a little while, and then I was a freelancer working for many more major publishing houses in education, and those were all physics-related. Very serious. Text, very serious textbooks, but textbooks for kids. Huh. 
So I did a lot of how do I make this fun? And then you have to kind of think like a kid, do little scenarios. They, there's always, I don't know if anyone's seen a textbook recently, but there's like the text and it's the middle part. But there's these big bookmarks on either side and weird little creative offshoots where to get the kids engaged, you write little sketches or you write like, did you know facts and things like that. And Did you do some of the sketches too? Uh, yeah, like, yeah, like little, um, you know, John and Phyllis are out discussing they see a cloud and it's a cumulus nimbus cloud or whatever it is and uh we talk you know then it's them having a dialogue about why that cloud is unique right right as if two kids were ever going to talk about the scientific facts behind (laughs) clouds but you have to write those little things that's happening so okay and then so that was in college that you um wrote some of that and no no that was that was all years that was after grad school after grad school did you keep doing improv in grad school I did one or two shows. I was in Houston. All my friends were in Austin. So I didn't do any Houston-based improv, but like a couple of times a year, I would come up and do some Austin-based improv. So I stayed a little bit in the circuit. Enough right. where I can still think it's continuous. Right, right, right. Right. Um, but then, yeah, just mostly just grad school. So, How do you feel when you're performing? Hmm. Uh, I feel outside myself or mm-hmm. deeper in myself, I guess. I, uh, I never remember what I did. Like if you if you ended an improv show, everyone's done. We bow on stage and say, "Hey, that was a great show, Aaron." And we'd be like, oh, "Okay." You kind of black out. I have no freaking clue. <laughs> uh, anything I just said or did, I have a general sense of whether or not the audience seemed to be into it, uh, but it kind of just goes in one ear and out the other. I remember one night I was hanging out with Genevieve, and you had come home from a show, mm. and you kind of gave her the rundown. Yeah, yeah. So I, I guess uh, maybe that maybe that amnesia starts immediately after. Maybe it starts as soon as I stop berating myself, whatever I did wrong in the show. Sure. As soon as the show was kind of emotionally done, it, yeah, it just kind of fades. I have a few scenes over the last 20 years I can really remember well, but mostly it kind of all runs together. Do you keep developing a scene in different shows? Like, do you feel like you mm-hmm. come, to, come back to certain themes, or is it all new all the time. I try to make it all new all the time. I think when I get into themes, I get into kind of writing it in my head beforehand. So improv, those of you listening at home, if you don't do this regularly yourselves, it, it's all made up on the spot. So, um, and it's made up on the spot with other people involved as well. So everyone kind of is negotiating the reality at the, at the, at the moment that it happens. So um, if I'm trying to bring things back too much or if I'm too much in my head, I'm essentially going to start blocking other people's ideas because I haven't made space for them, right? So if I'm going to let their other ideas come in, I kind of have to let everything I've preconceived just kind of go away. It's a big, um, it's kind of like a tentative improv is to let it go. Are there some rules that you can tell our listeners about improv, like the yes and? Yeah, well, there's that one. Yes and just means whatever someone else says about the reality you're in, you agree with it, yes, and then you add to it, and. Right, and that's just so that you can all kind of play pretend together. A lot of improv is just playing pretend together. If you have kids at home and you're watching them play, a lot of them be like, "Hey, I'm a superhero, and this over here is a dragon, and you're a dinosaur," and the other one's like, "No, no, 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 I'm not a dinosaur. I'm an evil villain." And like they they keep on rewriting each other, and it's hard for them to play together. And once they can kind of say yes to each other, you will see kids get along a lot better, and they they all decide they're definitely all going to be Power Rangers and they're all going to do those stances and stuff. So when they agree, it, it just looks better. They have more fun. Adults are the same way. If you're on stage and you're agreeing with each other, it's a lot more fun and it's a lot less chaotic and you don't override each other. 
What are some other rules you can think of? Um, accept your failures. That's a big one. So uh, we have a thing called a failure bow, which people call different things in different cities with different theater backgrounds. But basically, it's just when you make a mistake, it's not like, I'm sorry for making a mistake. It's, I made a big mistake, everybody. Aaron made a big mistake. Everybody give a big applause for Aaron for making a stupid mistake. Great. And it lets you release it, right? Yeah. The worst thing you can do on stage, uh, at least the worst feeling thing, is to just freeze. To just be there, someone says, hey, Mr. Dunstan, how's your day? And you're like, right? And it's because you get into your head, like, what? I don't know who Mr. Dunstan is. I don't know. Why do I have a nice day? Did I have a nice, like, as long as that monologue's going in your head, you can't have fun and make things up. So you just have to accept that you're going to fail. And as soon as you can accept your fail, you realize those ideas kind of come out a lot more smoothly. Your fear of failure is blocking your creativity in improv. Mm. Generally, that's one of the concepts. Yeah. Uh, let's see some other rules. Some other rules are either there's two schools of thought, and I don't actually necessarily mean schools, but some there might be different improv teachers who prescribe to one or the other, but it's uh, take care of yourself or take care of others. So a lot of uh, people who are training you to do scene work in front of a crowd will say, take care of yourself. Be your own character. Do your own thing. Focus on what you're doing. Live in the reality, but just focus on yourself. Make yourself look good. Everyone else will make themselves look good, and together you'll have a really good show. Oh, that's Don't go and like mess with other people's stuff, right? Don't try to make them better. Right. Don't try to keep them in control. Just look at yourself. And then other people have the exact opposite thought, which is take care of others, which is if I make all my scene partners sound as funny as they can be, if I set them up for jokes, if I help them be who they are, et cetera, et cetera, then I will naturally, as my characters, as my whatever, be as good as I can be as well. If we take care of each other, everyone's fed. Right. So, um, which one do you prescribe to? It just kind of depends on what I switch back and forth. And I think I switch back and forth even inside the same show of a night. So there's sometimes when you, the stage is dead, right? It's no one has an idea and you just got to kind of go out there and start something. Or sometimes the show is kind of limp. I don't know really how else to describe it, but you know, if everyone's been to either a stand up comic or they see in theater and it's like, this is kind of boring. Mm-hmm. No one really cares what's happening. So in those cases, sometimes you really have to come out and just be like, hey, look at me. I'm the greatest. I'm the best. I'm what you want to laugh at. I'm what maybe you don't want to laugh. Maybe you want to hate me. Whatever it is. Me, 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 me. And that kind of gets the show a little bit of juice. So you start kind of moving along with it. Other times, people are just bopping and weaving. They're having a great time. I won't snap anymore, Amber. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but yeah, they're bopping and weaving. They're having a good time. They're, everything is like an energetic and all you really need to do there is go in and like set them up for the next joke. Right. right. There's a lot of um, uh, platform tilt, which is a kind of a comedy term where you you build a reality. Hey, we're all in a grocery store. We're having grocery store interactions. Tilt, but it's a grocery store on Mars. Oh, wacky, crazy. Uh, and that's uh, that's like a very hokey thing. But like, but you can see a more complex version. We're like I'm switching sure. it up. Switching it up. Establish a reality. Put a tilt on it. See what's happening. Or we do things called. Uh, establishing a game and elevating a game. So a game would be every time I ask for something, you give it to me immediately, but tell me why it's terrible. I don't know why that would be funny, but that's maybe we just, the audience reacts to that and that's a fun thing. So we just keep on doing that. That's a game we can keep on playing. I first, I gave you an apple. Now I'm giving you a car. Now I'm giving you the planets, right? We elevate the game. We escalate the game. So in that way, the audience is, it's the rule of threes, right? It's, oh, establish the game, amplify the game. And then sometimes you put a little twist on the game. 
right? And that is another way of the people kind of try to build comedy scenes. I'm butchering some of the terms and some of the ways <laughs> actual teachers of improv would probably present this, but that's the way I understand it from inside. Have you taken improv classes or always just <sighs> kind of been in a troupe and learned from people around you? Much more the latter. Um, so the same guys, Jeremy, uh, who was a great improv teacher and director, um, he really put us through our paces when we were in high school, right? As best as he, he was also in high school. We were all just sort of teaching each other, reading books, seeing other people do improv, trying to get as best as we can, really doing as strange things as we can. Our first name was Matt Ezekiel and the Oedipus Freaks. Give you an idea of the sort of high school level of humor. And then we got much more mature when we decided to call ourselves the well-hung jury. So again, uh, the level of, of, yes. of, of humor we were at. But within that sort of, we're all 19, 20-year-old, mostly dudes, um, we really pushed ourselves. Like, oh, you know, there's a theater form that's called avant-garde. Well, I don't really understand it much. Let's read like a half a book about it and then try to improvise that. Like, oh, we were doing this in there at the wind play. It's about a courtroom. Why don't we just do a courtroom improv? How would we do that? I don't know. Let's just make it up, right? So we kept on pushing ourselves to do things that we hadn't seen anyone else do. Mm -hmm. And in that process, I think we taught ourselves you can do anything. And a lot of other people get there through classwork, right? You can take a class about you can do anything. But at the time, not having a lot of money and just really being into our own selves, like really up our own asses, we were ready to just explore. Yeah. So I got into that framework and then I got into college and joined another troop in college who had basically the same spirit. That's why I was attracted to them, essentially. There was, we can do anything we want. We're the improv group that does anything we want. And we're not going to necessarily just be Whose Line Is It Anyway, which is a popular improv TV show. Sure, sure, sure. Um, and so from there, I learned and got better. I attended maybe like one workshop over like eight years. And then I just got into that mode where I'm like, I saw a lot of the other people take classes, but I've always been kind of, I don't know, nose in the air about classes. Just, just go do some more improv, right? I have taken a singing class because I don't know the first damn thing about improvised singing. Um, and I would gladly take classes now. Now that I am over myself a little bit, <laughs> I can see the value uh, and the value in having, some, uh, having to adapt to someone else's direction. Right? There's a lot of like when you put bounder, boundaries on your creativity, it actually sometimes make you, makes you more free and more creative because you're within a narrower range, you understand it, and you can just go wild inside those bounds. So when someone says, hey, I want to really work on this kind of workshop where it's about um, two-person scenes, well, that's a big restriction on what you can possibly do. But now that I know I can only do two-person scenes, fuck it, let's do as many different weird, crazy, out-of-my-mind two-person scenes I can possibly think of. And that in introduces a lot of creativity that if you just said do some scenes, I may never get there. So when you got into the improv scene, it was with people mm. that you knew. Yeah. How did you get into other improv troops? Did you meet them in like around and you knew that they were in it? Or did you, are there like auditions? How would just the layman try to get into an improv troupe if they were trying to start out? Well, so it depends on who the layman is. So if you were a high school student or a middle school student or a college student, you can literally just go grab other friends who like doing it and tell a professor, teacher, custodian who can get you into a space to let you do it, right? If you are in college, you can literally most, um, what do they call it, like the school university? Yeah, the, the student congress. 
There you go. Council? Whatever the student, student council. council. The student council of a college usually has the rights to give clubs access to whatever rooms they need. So if you form a new club, I mean, they can't say you can't. I mean, usually most schools are like, well, yeah, you can form whatever club you want to fund. They will usually just give you space. So in college, we were just like, yeah, we need the theater. And you're like, well, if you sign up for it three months ahead of time, you can get it. Okay, great. We want it now, now, now. We just did that. We just performed and we've made our own flyers and we brought our own people in. So if you are in a school system that has resources, you can literally just grab people and you're going to suck at it, but you can just do what you want. Um, if you're outside of that, you really probably need to have a theater, which means you probably need to be able to get stage time there, which means you need to have a lot of disposable income and a lot of friends who have disposable income or take classes, which is also, well, actually it was an expense, but, um, yeah, unless you're going to rent the theater yourself, usually you would take some classes, you meet other people. A lot of the people that I am now doing improv with have started in the last, say, four or five years. And a lot of them, their first class, the first three classes, or at some point, one of the classes they took, those people are all now lifelong friends, or at least decade-long friends, right? I feel like theater does that for people. Yeah. You spend a lot of time... With people, you know, mm. rehearsing and like getting to know them in a deeper yeah. level than I would assume. Yeah. Other we, yeah, yeah, it's, it, it, there's, it, uh, it scratches a lot of itches we have psychologically, I think. I have this whole theory that improv is a cult and that's actually why it works. Um, I don't know. But if you're, um, yeah, if you're interested in doing improv, classes are probably the way to do it. Then you audition for stage time and then you try to get into a show or two and then it kind of goes from there. Either people want to see you on stage a lot and you just kind of cascade into a bunch of shows, and you do a bunch of shows with whoever. Or people aren't really buying what you're selling, in which case you go through some existential crisis, and then you eventually kind of <laughs> fool around until you find something people want to watch, or you find yourself not caring what the people want to watch anymore, and then either way, you end up kind of finding something new you can put on stage and people will come and see. So, I mean, someone could go to a show and just start hanging around and watching it. and That is what the... I mean, I... Um, hopefully I'm not saying anything that's upsetting to my friends who own theaters, but <laughs> no, the, I want to go see a show and now I want to hang around is a big part of their business model, right? All the theaters I know that do, that put on improv performances have improv schools. In fact, I know one improv school that doesn't even really put on that many shows. They just really put on enough shows to show competency in what they're doing. They're gotcha. mainly there as a school. So yes, if you go and see an improv show and they don't say, Hey, you can come take a class later you still can go take a class later. I guarantee it. Yeah. Is it still kind of dominated by dudes or are the troops that you are in now? So kind of I, it depends. If you're listening to this in a, in like LA or Chicago or New York, you probably the same way, you're probably going to go to a improv show and it's all going to be white guys in their twenties. Right. And that's universally true in big cities. Cause those are the people who have, who are trying to make it into comedy, and comedy is still very much white guys in their 20s, right? But you also probably, even those major cities, find like the improv space or the improv show that has people of color, and you'll probably do the improv show or improv space that has women, right? Uh, I've been in the scene in San Francisco and Austin. It's much more egalitarian, probably just because of the kind of hippie attitudes in those cities. I'm assuming it can kind of match whatever city you're in. Austin. Um, through the work of Shana Merlin, Casey Beeler, I'm going to not be able to name all the women who have made it kind of their work to bring women into the space to push out 
this idea that there's any inequality and in how funny you can be, how artistic you can be, et cetera. They've put in the days, hours, years, now more than a decade in some of these women's cases. When I was, when I was coming up, still definitely a bunch of dudes in their 20s, but the women that were there with us stuck around and pushed out and developed and were instrumental in forming a community now that is at least, yeah, that is as close to egalitarian as they can possibly make it. And I think they're always striving to be better and better and better. I say that because it's actually a continuous issue. We have these ongoing conversations, especially around race and ethnicity and sexuality and um, gender. We don't see a lot of people who don't look like Hollywood mm -hmm. because if you're watching whatever you're watching, if there's you're not, not someone, represented. Yeah, yeah, if you're not represented on the, on the screen or on the stage, you don't think it's for you maybe. And maybe the people who are up there performing or maybe the, whatever, there might be unconscious kind of push that keeps people out as well. And that's really hard to say because I'm on stage and my friends are on stage. No one wants to exclude anybody. But I think it's something we're realizing more and more. You can't just say, hey, I want people of different looks and different backgrounds. You have to actually go and work to pull people in. And I think in terms of women and men, we had some really strong pioneers and strong people very dedicated to it. And we're just now getting that momentum, just now getting, I'm probably erasing a lot of people's work. Mm -hmm. But we're now having the commitment in Austin to really bring people in. And uh, it's baby steps, but... That's trying. great. I love I to hear so, yeah. that. Improv is a collaborative process. Um, how does that work for you? Are you collaborative in nature? Yeah. Um, I, yeah. Again, it's, it's all therapy for me. It's all me relaxing and getting to do something fun. And so I will gladly go up and do a monologue or whatever, but I don't, I'm, I'm mostly there to laugh at someone else and then make them laugh. So, or make someone else cry in a way that everyone consents to. So, what is the overlay of improv in your life? Is there anything that is similar about it that would make something else interesting for you? Or is it just oh, yeah. this shining star of its own and that's why you're drawn to it so much? No, uh, it, it kind of bleeds into everything. I didn't realize, so again, because I, I've always come at it as a, this is a way to get myself de-stressed and having fun. I didn't realize how much it was creeping into the rest of my life. What does um, the audience do for you? that you don't get out in the world? The laugh track? I, I There's a laugh track, but I don't always do funny stuff. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I just do weird stuff. Sometimes I do serious stuff. I think the audience... It, I, so I daydream all day. Like all day, every day, I'm constantly just making up stories and imaginative machinations in my head mm -hmm. all the time. Um, I don't know if any of that is entertaining. I just know that's what I'm doing. I'm off my own reality. So when I'm in front of an audience... It's again, it's just a boundary constraint. It's just like, okay, but we want to do the stuff that's interesting to us. It's like, oh, we're on stage. You can kind of feel that. You can feel when the audience is not paying attention. So having that constraint makes me be as much more creative inside that, that boundary. So now I care that the audience is bored or excited. Now I care that the audience is laughing or quiet. Now I care that the audience is actually paying attention to what the words I'm saying versus my physicality or whatever. Um, so that is very inspiring. Uh, but it doesn't have to be a big audience, right? It can be a small audience. It can be rehearsals because we'd rehearse the same way you would practice a sports. The game. sports. The sports. <laughs> uh, the same way you would practice before a basketball game or whatever. You would run drills and things like that. Um, the two-man drill down the court. Pass it back and forth. Chess passes. Um, 
Are you showing off that you know some sports? <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, please, please. I'm no longer the little kid in the sweatpants with the books. I'm so cool. I'm so, I'm so cool. Uh, yeah, no. Uh, yeah, we do that same sort of drilling, practicing stuff. And in those rehearsals, it's often even better than when it's in front of an audience because then it's your peers, right? You can be a lot more esoteric. You can be a lot more up your ass and doing things that are just like really kind of subtle and hard for other people to get because they're not watching you for 20 hours this month. Whereas your friends who are like, we've done this exact same thing right. 12 times now. The fact you now you're doing it backwards or you're putting one foot slightly to the right for some reason is hilarious. It's because we've just it's so many variations on a theme. You can see the little bitty differences. And, uh, but for an audience, it's a lot more kind of broad. You sort of play it to try to hit the middle of the audience. There's always going to be someone who does not give a shit. And there's always someone who, like, you could fart. And I think it's the funniest thing in the world. You kind of have to get the middle of people yeah. involved. Yeah. Do you feel like there's something that you are getting from these group settings, just kind of being sensitive to their changes in mood or what their, their dialogue, do you feel like that can apply to your romantic relationship with your wife? Huh. Uh, I think it goes more in the other direction. Uh, she always inspires me to be a lot more emotional, vulner emotionally vulnerable, a lot more uh, empathetic to other people's broadcasting emotions. And so when I am on stage, I often find myself treating people in the treating characters as my own character in a more sympathetic, empathetic way. And I think that's definitely her influence on my art versus the other way around. I think what it's a lot easier for me to see flows from improv to the rest of my life is people who I am either intimidated by in real life or and maybe don't find too pleasant. So like when I inter interact with someone who is just an asshole, mm -hmm. I'd be like, this is an interesting character. I see what you're doing here. You're being an asshole. That's very funny. This imaginary audience that's all around us is probably thinking you're pretty cool. Now I can just play with you, be with you. Do the things that in our real life we have to do, give you money for whatever goods and service or write down your insurance information after you hit me with your car, whatever. Like I can get through that part of my life because it's just another scene. You're controlling your emotions yeah. because you have this buffer around you of it being yeah. like a little game. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I cannot do that. Well, it's uh, again, why I think improv is a cult and why it's a good thing mm -hmm. is it provides, that's one of the things it really provides is charisma on command or this ability to sure. see your reality as pretend, not in like a dysfunctional way, but in a, ah, uh, I can just be a character in my own life when I need to be. Are there times that you want to not be on and turn it off and just kind of recharge? Mm. So my being on is not, uh, yeah. I'm always on as much as I possibly can be because my style of comedy or whatever is just me being a dude. Mm -hmm. Like if I'm funny on stage, I'm either super, super wacky, right? Or I'm just being the weird sardonic 30-something dude. And so in my life, when, I'm, when it's on, I'm just trying to be myself as much as possible because I think that's going to get, again, make the imaginary audience more interested in the character, right? So... Um, so yeah, I don't mind being on, but, but I think huh. there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of stigma around it because especially when you're first new to improv, you desperately want all your classmates or scene partners to think you're funny. Right. So you're constantly pitching jokes and stuff like that. What do you do to recharge? Mm, you go change. on walks. I go on walks. Oh, I, I thought you meant sort of big picture. Uh, you know. 
Yeah. Uh, Answer it however you... It kind of depends on why I'm drained. If I'm drained because of emotional stress or anger, then I work out. Okay. If I'm existential, I go on a walk. I walk a lot. <laughs> Get your steps in. Get my steps in. I'm at 15,000 today, folks. It's been a very existential day. What is your good number? That oh, you I, I guess 10,000. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's whatever whatever Fitbit says makes me a decent human being. Okay. Whatever it tells me that I'm okay person and I don't have you to hate myself. You got to Fitbit yeah. as well yeah. as your audience. Yeah, my Fitbit gods. So, uh, yeah. Um, and then it, I read a lot if I'm feeling stagnant, like intellectually. Um, and then if I'm feeling sort of spiritually sick, then I just run to my partner. And sort of engage with her as much as possible. Um, I don't know if that's because of who she is or because who we are. Are you a morning person or a night person? Um, or a middle of the day person? I'm a middle of the day person. I'm a sunshine and sweat person. What time do you get up in the morning? As late as possible. Mm -hmm. I have a son who was under four years old. So as late as possible is usually around eight. Because he wakes up. Well, right now. It's very reasonable. Yeah, that is well, not late. No, that is... That is late because he gets up about 6.45 or 7 and Genevieve has been doing this really gracious thing where she gets up with him and then lets Very me put him gracious. to bed. It's amazing. I think it's because she's pregnant and she has insomnia. I cannot understand why she's doing it for me. I just, it's insane. Huh. To be allowed to be sleeping until 8 o'clock when there's yeah. a child downstairs screaming for his breakfast. It's, I don't know. Matt and I take turns. Well, for, for wake ups. See, that, morning. to me that seems equitable and fair. Uh, I don't know. I'm making out like a bandit. I don't know how, <laughs> however long it lasts. I'll just, I'll take it. Rub those pregnant, swollen feet. Yes. I do do a lot of massaging, so yeah. maybe it balances you out. You care for her in I, lots of different yeah. ways. So when do you work on your creative endeavors? It's usually night for improv, It's right? certainly night for improv just because of everyone's schedule. Um, when I'm writing, I usually do it at night as well. Uh, I have, a, I have my job is very much on demand, so it's hard to squeeze anything in. That it feels like I'm cheating someone if I try to do something creative during the day. Basically, do you work from home? I can't remember. I do most okay. of the time. I go in a couple of days a week. Yeah, tech jobs are a lot more flexible now. I think they're realizing they're spending thousands of dollars to give you a cubicle when they could just, you know, let you work from home. Where do you write? Uh, on a laptop. If I want to actually keep it. I've occasionally written into a notepad in my scraggly handwriting, and I'm sure I've written maybe a hundred pages that have just disappeared. Do you feel like it flows better if you are writing on your computer? Uh, well, I'm a faster typer now than I can write. That's and that, what happened that, to me. It just happens at some point when you have a job where you write emails all day, you just get faster at it. Yeah. So yeah, and I write on my laptop, and so that's it just, yeah, that's my, that's where I write. And I generally try to write in the same place I do work because it's comfortable. So you have a spot at home. Yeah. I, again, best wife in the world. I have an office. So our guest room is also like where I work for work. So I just fire up a different laptop and sit in the same space. Does Genevieve work in there as well? Or is it, you know, all your no, stuff? No, because she actually rents an office. So all of she's, her yeah, she's a business. therapy stuff is there. Yeah. Gotcha. No, but yeah, I write on my laptop. I yeah. I kind of really try to get myself into a workspace attitude about it. So like because that lets me let go of writing. Writing for me, it's very hard not to write a sentence, press backspace, and write it again a hundred times. And improv has really helped me just say oh. no. The same way you can't like you have to let go and embrace your failures when you're on stage. You need to just produce 
right? Make it less precious. Yes. Just you're going to have this idea as soon as you have it. Don't wait. Don't hold it back. Don't wait for the for it's just right moment. Get it out and trust that you'll have another good idea coming on later on. And yeah, build rather than knock down and rebuild. Um, a friend of mine said he is the kind of writer that writes a sentence and then irons it out and then writes the next sentence and goes back and like is slowly like building this like one of those old printers, right? And I, if I did that, I would have written a paragraph right. my entire life. Right. How often do you edit? Um, I only edit when I'm reading it in its entirety. So if I say I have time to read 20 pages and I'll edit those 20 pages and I try to just edit those things which are nonsense. Not like creative nonsense, but like you were typing so fast you missed a couple words here, Aaron. The sentence no longer actually is understood. You don't, I can't understand it. You, the writer, don't know what your intention was. Okay, you can edit that. Yeah. Or you mistype something or you used the wrong character name or whatever. What type of stuff do you write? I am in the middle of trying to write a novel. It only it was only maybe like I guess I'm fifty pages in, and I realized that I wasn't so much writing something that someone else should read. I was avoiding journaling my emotions by putting it into a creative project. Oh, nice. Uh, I mean, nice it's in the sense. It's a good realization. Is it's what a, that yes, nice was. It's nice to have that realization. It also made me say, like, well, I don't. Well, now I'm not going to write anymore. Because I don't like working on myself. <laughs> I don't like to admit the fact that this, this is a flawed human being on the other side of this microphone. So, uh, yeah, my ego gets in the way. But I'm probably, I'm committed to finishing it at some point. Uh, besides that, I write short stories and some things which aren't really stories so much as me telling people what to think in a way that might incorporate. Proclamations? Yeah. Uh, I don't really, I mean, column type mm-hmm. stuff. Essays I, and whatnot. Essays, yeah. Um, I wrote as a journalist for three years and um, uh, singularityhub.com still up and bopping around. Um, and, uh, but it was tech journalism, right? I was writing subject uh, and uh, fact-based stuff. Uh, but from there, I was able to quickly, I developed a way of having a dynamic formula. I don't, so this is how you open a paragraph. This is the way you close it, et cetera. The way you build a, a story structure. And, um, and here's a thousand different ways of moving slot A into slot B in the paragraph to kind of vary it up so your audience doesn't get bored, right? But so you can still write 2,000 words a day or whatever it is in order to get the, the content out you need to get out. Um, hopefully my readers never understood how formulaic my writing was. But from the experience in journalism, it's very easy for me once I get into a creative mindset, once I accept the fact that I want to write and I have something I want to say, it's very easy for me to build a structure around it. It's very easy to say like beginning, middle, end. It's very easy for me to do foreshadow, uh, second hint, conclusion, revelation, whatever. Like it's very easy for me to work those elements in because it's it's just a variation on a on a formula that I was using to do fact based journalism. Those right. are your constraints, just are, like yeah. you had some for improv. Exactly. So, um, yeah, a couple like a year or two ago, I was putting some up on Facebook. These little like musings, and I realized I got way too into how many of my friends pressed like or whatever. And, sure. And then I was like, well, then if I if I'm that into it, I should just actually try to publish these or something. And then I realized I had actually no interest in trying to getting essays published anywhere. It's it's a whole other thing. I think uh, internet writing, so it was a blog I was writing for, uh, taught me that writing for the internet is really undervalued. So unless you're writing for a website 
that is very good to its writers. Cracked used to be that way, is no longer that way, unfortunately, or is trying to be that way still. Uh, But like Huffington Post and a bunch of other places you probably read essays on, those writers are probably not paid very much, if anything, right? And so why would I go put my contact there to get views? Maybe, right? But if it's about me feeling good about my own stuff, then I'll just put it out there on my own and no one will ever read it. But my, my satisfaction comes from just having it out there and then I just kind of go about my life. Do you have a blog? I have a, pl- a website, strangebutfalse.com, uh, that I tell no one about. <laughs> it's just a, it's as low-tech as it can make it look. It is a bunch of weird photos that if you clicked on them, there would be text that f- shows up on the next page. But nothing on there says anything. No one says, hey, this is short stories. It's just stuff. Um, ag- again, I, most of what I do creatively is for my own satisfaction. It's mostly just to kind of you know, deal with the, the whole process I have going on in my head. Yeah, I feel like the audience kind of guides what the writing is or becomes if that is an interactive process. So just like the audience kind of leads your improv Mm -hmm. session, that's not the right word, scene. Sure. Um, I feel like when I started writing a blog, I figured people that I knew would read it, but Mm. people I knew interact with me in real life. So the the comments and the likes were from complete strangers. So I started writing to interact with strangers. Oh, yeah. So it totally changed the voice, Mm -hmm. um, the direction of the blog. And I got to the point where I got what I needed out of that. There was some interaction I was craving because I was trying to get pregnant. And I was a little lonely, you know, like there were... My friends hadn't started having kids yet. Mm. And so, like, the time of my life was different than it was with them. And so I kind of needed to reach out to people who were going through similar experiences. Um, And so the reason I say all that is I I got to the point where my friends in real life kind of caught up Mm. and I could relate to them again. Mm -hmm. And so I stopped having that need of writing to virtual people. Yeah, interesting. So I took a break from my blog. Yeah. Well, maybe it served its purpose, right? It did. Yeah. And yeah. I think I think that's probably why I don't share much of what I write mm-hmm. is because its purpose isn't the same as improv. Improv is for fun. My writing is so to get the demons out of my head and into it's a piece brain of paper. Dump. Yeah, it's a purging. Mm-hmm. Um, improv is is different, and I think that when I trip myself up in improv, it's because I ask too much of it. Is there anything creative you'd like to try but are afraid or hesitant to? Dance. Uh, I am a, I just love dancing. Uh, I am freaky looking and weird, uh, when I am on the dance floor, but, um, but yeah, I was just watching This Is America with Charles Gambino. (gasps) So good. So good. And it made me realize how many times the single ladies video, there's a lot of times when I've watched people put a lot of effort into choreography. Yeah. Uh, and not just, you know, big names, stuff I've seen in person. I realized like, oh. I can't do that because I do not, not because I don't think I could do the moves, though I think it would be very hard. It would take a lot of training, but I can't, that is, that is a bridge too far for me as far as my ego, as far as my sense of comfort. And again, uh, people, you know, yeah, if you perform on stage enough, you eventually think enough of yourself, you think you might be able to do anything. I've reached that point where I'm like, maybe I could dance in front of people and it Mm -hmm. wouldn't be awful. 
it probably would and humiliating, but there's at least a little bit of my super confidence. It's like, hey, but do it anyway, Aaron. Try just mm-hmm. a little bit. So, How many people have to be on a dance floor for you to get on it? Oh, two. Okay. So if it's like for fun. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know how to ham it up. Yeah. I think what I, yeah. I think the idea of someone just watching me dance is like, why would they do that? That's absurd. And yet I've watched people dance and been moved by it and thought it was uh. amazing. So... Clearly, it's possible. Yeah. 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 That's my that's my frontier. I don't know when I'll maybe I'll get to it when I'm sixty. What are you going to do to scratch this itch while being on baby duty? Mm, well, I think it's going to be easier to write because it'll I'll have a kid who needs attention, but who can also be who just sits there, right? It's like inside a little bassinet. Uh, probably watching my uh, son a lot, my older son. So I imagine I'll be doing a lot of playing pretend and Voltron, Power Rangers stuff, whatever's good guys, bad guys, skeletons, the, you know, standard toddler fare. Boy stuff. Boy stuff. Uh, playing with his doll. Not Maybe that's boy stuff now. Oh, I, I like know. that. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah. If you're listening, Alex, first off, creepy, you're a doll. Second off, <laughs> big shout out to you, little Alex. Um, <laughs> Alex the doll. Um, and then uh, I don't think I've told anybody this, but I bought myself a bass guitar. I used to play viola in middle school, and I was terrible at it. But I really found it uh, calming to do the little fingering, strumming stuff, mm-hmm. or bowing stuff. And so I thought, what is the most middle-aged, ridiculous thing you can do, Aaron? And I was like, well, I could buy a bass guitar and try to learn it. I was like, all right, I'm doing that. Yeah. That's Yeah. There's a certain satisfaction that comes from being as... Uh, just unapologetically like crazy and um i don't know what to say yeah you just have to dive in sometimes i mean like i i pick so what happens is i will notice something so i will like follow on instagram certain things like embroidery or cross stitch or uh, quilting i'll just kind of like pay attention then like decide I'm about to do that or start listening to podcasts and three days later decide (laughs) I want to start my own. So if there's like a three day incubation period before I realize that, yes, I want to do that. Oh, that's I, for me, it's, I go and bury it in the yard figuratively, Mm -hmm. but like I'll get an idea that I want to do something. And so I'll take a step or two and then I'll go and put it somewhere completely out of visibility or, or just kind of barely where I can see like the mound, the yard where I buried that body knowing that like, are, are you going to become a necromancer, Aaron later? Just do it when you're ready. When it's Halloween, bring a, raise someone from the dead. Then find the right time, find the right time. So now the, yeah, there's a bass guitar in my closet that I'm just like mm, sometime, buddy. Mm-hmm. I don't know when someday I will, th- I will accept the fact that I bought you and that I'm a terrible hack need <laughs> archetype. If you were to give yourself a title for your crafting identity, what would your title be? Uh, I think I'm a daydream believer and a big drama queen. Oh, I like it. I like it so much. Well, thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Angelica. I really appreciate it. This was so much fun. I think it lived up to my high standards. Oh, I I thought it went terribly. I'm going (laughs) to berate myself for hours and hours about this, but I appreciate it all the same. Yes. And also thanks to our listeners, and we hope you'll stay tuned for more episodes of Chatty Crafties. You can find Aaron's tenderly written musings at strangebutfalse.com. But I wouldn't tell him we sent you there. 
Whenever possible, you can see him on stage at the Hideout Theater, making it up on the fly, for which he's been hailed as the Superman of Austin Improv. But I wouldn't tell him that either. Ego-sensitive tones crafted by Berm and Swale. Check him out on Facebook, then spend some time with us at chattycrafties.com. Find us on Instagram, Twitter, SoundCloud, Google Play, subscribe on iTunes, or just do what feels right to you. This episode was produced by me, Amber Moreno, and hosted by my crafty comrade, Angelica Norton, right here at Open Envelope Studio. Thanks for listening. Now go make some art.